When choosing a title for this seminar, the first thing that came to my mind is how Saudi women fiction writers are expressing themselves and how they are influenced by national and Western global discourses, both of which continue to use the women issue to serve their, their various agendas. Other issues include how Saudi women writers are responding to the institutionalization of their womanhood, how they are manipulating words, and how they are using the small space of power that they have in order to make a difference to their reality. The limitations on women's writing and on their imagination makes writing challenging for them because they have to strike the right balance between what's acceptable and what's not. They must also adhere to gender-appropriate norms, which are exemplified by the endless restrictions on women's personal freedom of mobility, moral geographies, veiling, and self-expression. So what do they do? They dance with words, especially when treading on dangerous terrain. So it is important to understand how women's fiction has been shaped by the various national and Western global discourses. The first Gulf War in 1991 was a major turning point in the history of the Gulf states, as it polarized people who had never taken an interest in politics before. The renewed contact with the West brought aspects of another culture and selective Western ideals to otherwise sheltered and isolated Arab Gulf communities. One consequence of this contact was that the West sought to expose the poor status of women in the Gulf states to international scrutiny, and in response, assurances were made by the Gulf states that women would be granted greater freedom and more rights. With the West's involvement in the Gulf conflicts, however, opposition towards women's rights has only grown more vehement, creating a radicalist backlash towards values that are dismissed and vilified as unwelcome Western imports. Similarly, the apocalyptic divide between us and them following the terrorist attacks of 9-11 has amplified the West's criticism of Muslims around the world generally and of Saudi Muslims specifically. In fact, post-9-11, Saudi women began to figure prominently in Western media, along with other Muslim women from Afghanistan and Iraq, in an attempt to convince the public to respond to, to support interventions in those areas. Because, to borrow the words of Nadia Ali, liberating women has become on one of a number of selling points in addition to delivering human rights and democracy. For this reason, when modernizers probe the issue of women, they are accused not only of being westernized and at odds with their culture, but also of actively serving a foreign agenda. Another point that has negatively impacted women is tribalism. It has played a role in thwarting Saudi women's emancipation and struggle for rights, because in that part of the world, loyalty to the tribe and its values overpowers loyalty to anything else, community, society, and so on. The alliance made between tribal and religious laws on one hand and nationalism or the legalization of patriarchal nationalism on the other has exacerbated the situation. Through a configuration of what Eleonore D'Amato dubs ideal womanhood perceived as a symbol of national identity, whose appearance and behavior represents the tribal family, Saudi women were robbed of all agency and individuality. In a nutshell, the woman issue has become a bargaining chip for religious and political gains in the name of God. The onset of Sahwa movement in the late 1970s further impeded women's emancipation. 
A key problem exacerbated by the Sahwa movement has been the spread of reductive notions about women, such as fitna, which in this context denotes luring non-related men into temptation and sin. Fatma Mernisi defines this term in her book Beyond the Veil as the chaos provoked by the beauty of a woman, with connotations of the Western femme fatale who makes men lose their self-control. This concept, fitna, ascribed exclusively to women, sanctioned their seclusion, segregation, exclusion from the public places that would have otherwise empowered them. With its hierarchical binary oppositions of inferior-superior, private, public, and concealing and revealing, Sahwa has thus validated regressive gender power relations that favor men over women. It has also generated and constru- constructed images of mythological figures, the woman as the queen of her home, the princess bride, the pearl in a shell, and so on. Such images projected to public discourse have engaged with a network of cultural, religious, and political signifiers, embracing a regressive web of power relations. This helped in the form- formation of a biased social consciousness and hence in the exerting of power and control over women. The normalization of such images has meant that women's agency and subjectivity were gradually and tacitly cancelled out. The damaging outcome of this would be seen in the years to come, precisely those between 1979 and 2000, during which time the implementation of new Religious and tribal laws not only impeded women's overall participation in public inception in the kingdom of a woman's total dependency on her father, brother, husband, and even son. Women writers who challenged the guardianship law at the time were warned by the highest religious authority in in the country not to interfere in religious interpretation. At one stroke, women's marginalization was legalized and normalized by the activation of Babsad Dara'ah, that is the act of prohibition of what may lead to committing sins. It was there and then that a conflict began between religious tribal forces and the process of women's identity formation. For this reason, the central thread linking most of Saudi women's fiction is the powerful interrelation between women's geography and power relations in which space and place are gender-loaded concepts that highly influence cultural formation and gender relations. It is hardly surprising to see how women fiction writer fiction it is hardly surprising to see how women's fiction has been shaped by these private spheres whereby gender segregation and veiling which are adopted at puberty signify the leap in a girl's life from childhood to womanhood ushering the woman into a new era of seclusion from the rest of society in the process of which rigid boundaries are established the transgression of which is unthinkable this is clearly shown in Badri al-Bishr's 2006 novel Hind al-Askar, Hind and the Soldiers, which depicts the mobility limitations and moral codes of behavior placed upon the protagonist Hind, who is surrounded throughout the narrative by what feels like policemen or askar, a loaded word that suggests being closely watched by male members of the family, a situation akin to living in a, pu- in a police state in microcosm. Sahwa saw the world through the lens of binary conceptualization, thus it was no surprise to see Awad al-Qarni, an ultra-conservative writer in the kingdom during the 1980s, not only because it exerted a wide and powerful influence on people, 
but, but also because it presented modernity as inherently secular and ethically void and conflated it with atheism and conspiracies against Islam and the Arabic language in general. The personal attacks levels, uh, leveled at women who dabbled with modernism, like the poets Fawziya Abu Khalid, Khadija Al-Amri, and author Raja Alam, ranged from accusations of heretic Sufism and sensual and sexual connotations to conspiring against the Arabic language and Islam. Such attacks and pressure on writers indicate a deeper cultural and political rupture in the collective consciousness of the nation. What is important here is how uh, incidents like this reveal the fragility of the dominant discourse in the face of women's marginal and decentered discourse, functioning as a reminder, as a reminder that it is an intersectional space of uh, identity, power, and agency or what the philosopher Gerald Dronick terms transversal concatenation. That is, the power of the new text to demolish traditional uh, hierarchy and produce different forms of collective subjectivity that breaks down the opposition between uh, the individual and the group. So torn between conflicting Islamic and Western ideologies, I examine the feminist gender, uh, identity, and literary aspects raised by the works selected after the cultural theorist uh, Stuart Hall, I examine women's fiction as a space of weak power, but it is a space of power. And I use the term transversal to describe the identity and resistance in women's marginal discourse and the alliance created in the space between art, social, political, and activist practices. So we move to subverting the master narrative. This is the second part of the paper. And we discuss how women are um, subverting the master narrative by, by their, I mean, fiction. So as in other parts of the world, the empowerment of women has gained buzzword status in today's uh, Saudi Arabia, with a surge in initiatives and leadership projects, all functioning in the context of reform, renewal, and change. Within this framework, academics, activists, feminists, and progressives are trying to combat women's marginalization by retrieving women's achievements in the various disciplines of science, medicine, art, and even feminism. Using literature and novels as a source of inspiration, the areas of, among others, social science research and policy making has therefore been a reliable method since the 1970s. Drawn from Michael Foucault, The Archaeology of Knowledge, the concept of counter-memory aims to resist and subvert the master narrative or the dominant discourse it also attempts to rewrite and retrieve history from a male-dominant point of view that has over the years played a significant role in overshadowing, if not trivializing, the accomplishments of prominent women. Engaging the memory has been a successful strategic tool in decolonizing people's collective imagination and of remembering the long-forgotten history and tradition of women. I regard the novel from form as a legitimate channel that attempts to destabilize traditional boundaries by, uh, ex by expressing women's writers' political and feminist views away from socio-religious and political limitation, in the sense that the accumulation of their texts lead to the formation of a new geographics 
of identity. This is evident in their plots and discursive practices which take women from a place of marginality to one of centrality and from the realm of the private to the, and, and the silence and of silence to the public and from powerlessness to power. Reading women's literature uh, within this context of counter-memory or cultural memory has been a valuable tool uh, in the process of the cultural inclusion of women's voices and in understanding the cumulative impact of women's writing and freeing women from the shackles of religious, tribal, and Western discourses. For this purpose, incorporating the first generation of writers is in a way a feminist attempt to exercise the cultural memory of women's early engagement with the dominating patriarchal narrative. This is especially so given that in the uh, circumstances, the number of women writers was scarce and their works were mostly published outside the kingdom at a time when mass communication was non-existent, which meant that their influence was limited if not dispersed and their voices ignored. Hence, no matter what critics say about the literary merits of their works of being too rhetorical, emotional, and of lacking major plot and social, psychological, and political dimensions, I look on these early contributions to literature as a genuine sign of Saudi women reclaiming their identity, agency, and position in public discourse. Thus, writing about the self, about the inner workings of the mind, and about familial issues, no matter how trivial they might, they might sound, shift women's space from the private and silenced to the public and voiced. The 1990s saw the real birth of the Saudi women's novel, which flourished remarkably in the year 2000, with a total of almost 100 novels written by women, some of which were debut efforts, with an average of 20 to 30 novels per annum. Hassan Nami, a university professor and critic, observes I See Girls of Riyadh by Rajah Sana um, as a turning point for readership in Saudi Arabia. He, ver he further notes that around 50 novels were published in 2006, six compared with 26 in the previous years. Previous year, exact numbers are not available since the majority of these works were published outside the kingdom. Of course, such figures not only attest to the popularity and, and increased readership of women's novels, but also mark their authors' increased appetite for fame and status in a global economy that is ready to consume and translate works about the mystical kingdom, or to quote Professor Marlene Booth, uh, words, the mystery of all mysteries, Saudi Arabia. On a deeper level, such figures raise questions about whether we should be rethinking or restructuring gender through fiction, with this rise in the number of women writers and the mounting frustration expressed in their texts, one cannot ignore the fact that the sum of their work pinpoints a drastic change in the way in which gender should be understood. So what are the themes that women writers adopt to subvert the master narrative? One of them is breaking the taboos of religion, sex, and politics. I look into Saudi women's texts and the themes that they adopt not only as a dialogue between women, writers, and patriarchal tradition, which maps out a hitherto anxiety-ridden terrain, but also as a site for feminist, if not nationalistic, debate. Following Roland Barthes' a notion of punctum, that is, a point of memory, which in spite of being personal, intersects with layers of cultural and historical signification. 
exposing what is not expected and rendering it visible for the reader. I look at the Sahwa movement as a marker of political and social memory, which was turned in women's texts text into a shared historical memory. Before the onset of Sahwa movement, that is in the 1960s, chatter about love out of wedlock was a theme in the works of Samira Khashibji, Into Name But Two, Wadda'tu Amali, Farewell to My Dreams, published in 1958, and Bariq Aynaik, The Sparkle of Your Eyes in 1963, which was turned into an Egypt- Egyptian movie. It's similarly featured in Huda Rashid, Ghadan Sayakun Al Khamis. Tomorrow will be Thursday in 1979. Both have broached the issue of love, but their language was never obscene or explicit. They danced with, with words in order to express their soft anger at feudal cultural laws and male hypocrisy. The trend towards breaking taboos evolved with time into what many critics dub daring and revolutionary voices. The first Saudi writer to break sexual, religious, and political taboos was Zainab Hifni in her 1996 collection, Nisa and the Khattal Istiwa, Women on the Equator. Hifni, unlike other writers at the time, did not dance with words, where still she wrote under her real name at the peak of the Sahwa, which was a bold step because this particular work stirred up anger among the authorities and general population. This anger led to the confiscation of her passport for four years, not to mention the telephone calls that she's received from anonymous women verbally abusing her. In a private interview, she told me that the reason for this reaction was precisely that she had never opted for self-exile or hidden her identity in order to protect herself from the nation's wrath. This trend, however, would reach a significant momentum in the year 2006 with the anonymous writer Ward Abdel Malik's shocking novel, Al Awba, The Return. In the novel, the author breaks sexual and religious taboos using Quranic tone and language in order to question God and to ridicule the religious system and its representatives in society. The obscene and blasphemous language used in this particular work was meant to shame the subculture of extremism and shift the gender power struggle, bringing to the foreground the personal struggle of a woman who had been a victim of sahwa. Similarly, Taif al-Hallaj, who is rumored to be the woman activist Wajih al-Hwaydir, published Qiran Muqaddas, Sacred Marriage, in 2007. Just like Abd al-Malik, al-Hallaj questions the social and political structure of patriarchy by exposing religious laws that allow prostitution in the name of marriage of convenience. Others came at a later stage, like the self-exiled Badri al-Bishr, who wrote Al-Urjuha, The Swing, in 2010, and Samar al-Migran, who, who wrote Nisa al-Munkar, Woman of Vice, in 2008, both broached the topic of love and even adultery using semi-explicit language with the intention of questioning the cultural laws of the Sahwa years, which resulted in many women sacrificing their marital rights and happiness. The second theme is um, globalization, women in the city. So this is another theme that has been used as a feminist tool and a mediator between, between women's consciousness and their identity. The theme of the city and travel is used in abundance in order to contest status quo and to reveal the hypocrisy and double standards of Saudi society and its continued use of Islamic cultural politics.
This is the case not only because cosmopolitan cities like London, Paris, and Toronto offer space in which to deconstruct and reconstruct female identity, but also because they offer space for writers to prosecute and accuse the local Saudi culture for limitation that it places on their personal freedom back home. Contact with those that they would not normally encounter throws up for women disproportionately questions of loyalty to their traditions. While cities such as uh, Beirut, Cairo, London, and Paris have been um, associated with romance and freedom in the imagination of many Saudi women writers across the board from the 1960s to 2015, the same cities also pose a challenge to their core values and identities. A good example is provided by Samira Khashoggi Wara al-Zabab, Beyond the Clouds, published in 1971, a novel that depicts the emotional vacuum of a divorcee who tries to escape her reality by moving from Jeddah to Beirut, where she tries to find love. Other women writers also dabbled with stories about love outside their national borders, such as Huda Rashid, who published Tomorrow Will Be Thursday. In Cairo, it was published in Cairo in 1979, also, Safiya Al-Ambar, sorry, Adam, published in 1986. However, in 2008, Saudi women engaged in increasingly with uh, globalization. Umayma Al-Khamis novel, The Leafy Tree, in Arabic, that's Al-Warifa, for instance, depicts the inner life of Al-Johara, a female physician from Riyadh who is offered a medical scholarship in Toronto. This device allows a quest for identity through Al-Johar's feelings of dislocation, which is evident in her mediation of the two cultures, her Islamic beliefs on the one hand, and the temptation to freely explore the world on the other. In Toronto, she is portrayed as struggling to maintain her traditional identity. This struggle, or Saudi identity, this struggle resonates with Edward Said's dialectic of inclusion and exclusion in his seminal uh, work, Orientalism, when Al-Johara ponders the idea of wearing, wearing the hijab, for example, that's full-face cover, she remarks, I will look like the animated character Batman, but I have to cover my hair to look prim. Maybe I should wear a woolen hat, but it's not cold outside. After much deliberation on what to wear and how others will perceive her, she decides to ditch the niqab. The same struggle is evident when Toronto brings about a change of heart in Al-Johara towards men too, resulting in a clash between her beliefs and the new identity that she is trying to embrace. For instance, she decides to go out on a date with her male colleague Bernard only to discover that he is from a different faith. A different faith, and I mean a different faith. So she is depicted as needing to breathe. She excuses herself to go to the toilet. She takes a deep breath and returns to the, to the table, trying hard to stay calm so that she can continue her training in his department. Of course, having dinner with a man is at odds with the local attitudes that she has left behind in Riyadh. There is, however, no explanation from the author as to why her protagonist is no longer maintaining the tradition of her country of origin at that point. Simply the niqab that once protected her from social contempt is unnecessary in Toronto and that she has transcended the limitations of cultural definitions of a good Saudi woman till she goes out on a date. 
So the third theme is incarcerated bodies, and I have to say that this theme was a bit problematic for me as a reader and researcher because there's a thin line between this theme and the next one, which is gender and violence. The first one, incarcerated bodies, is is pain not inflicted by someone else, whereas this one is, I mean, comes from within the self as a result from social pressures. So in pursuing this theme, I examine how Raja Alam and Sabal Hirs use the female body as a site to expose the cultural politics of gender and sexuality. Both Raja Alam and Khatim, named after its protagonist, and Sabal Hirs al-Akharun, the others, narrate the stories of gender-confused characters, the androgynous Khatim and Sara the Boya. That's a slang word for a cross-gendered woman or a girl. Saudi women writers attempt to recreate the female experience of incarceration and pain in a highly carnivalistic way, one that bestows visibility on both the protagonist and her dilemma, usually a private and inexpressible experience that becomes public. Expression of pain in Saudi women's novels have not only given women writers the space and freedom to subvert the master narrative that trivializes the suffering of women, but have also shamed the culture that has silenced women for so long. For almost 30 years, Saudi literature threw a veil of silence over women who occupied the margins of male texts. So by, by bringing back the female body and voice into their texts, women writers are converging real pain into the fiction of power, as Elaine Skye writes in The Body and Pain. In an interview, Marlon Powell, a Canadian presenter and writer, asked Alam, that's the author of the first novel, I know many of are not familiar with Saudi literature, so Alam is the writer of Khatim, the novel I'm discussing here. So she asked her, what is it like to be a woman living in Saudi Arabia? To which she simply replied, you yearn to rise above the female form that's been smothering you for decades. You want to find a way to crack the veneer, the crippling veneer. The attempts by both the aforementioned writers to crack this veneer by paradoxically ridding women of the female form is in a way empowering. Their protagonists thereby feel freer to move around in the male-dominated world enjoying the same male privileges that come with abandoning their soft voice, dress, and feminine self-conduct. Khatim reflects on the inherent problem of male favoritism in the Arab nuclear family. This explains its portrayal of the other six daughters in the family as mute throughout the novel, in a way echoing both women's marginality in society and its model of propriety which equates the desirability and beauty of women with silence, virtue, and charm. Gendered as neither male nor female, Khatim cannot be a man, so she is depicted as wavering between the two worlds, wearing both male and female garments, according to the events that she is attending. Reading Khatim of the female form is meant to empower the entire family in the face of a purely patriarchal culture, so they have a son. They, they cover the fact that she's a girl when she was on her birth, so they cover it up and she's treated as, as a boy. So this is empowering for the family more than the girl herself. So with regard to the, with regard to the others, 
I will move away from cliches such as this novel largely served to uh, validate stereotypes of the exotic and repressed Saudi women through a girl's sexual journey because it's, it was an explosive novel that talked about lesbianism in, in Saudi Arabia. So I will move away from this and instead I will focus on how the author effectively politicizes the female body in the context of a patriarchal authoritarian society. She achieves this in the sense that the sexual fantasies of her protagonist can, can be read as an expression of revolt and a way in which to reclaim her agency. Drawing on Claude Lévi-Strauss' expression, I am the place in which something has occurred. The female protagonist of this novel is caught between the absurd religious rhetoric of a minority group and unaccommodating officialdom, which combine to enforce gender apartheid. Being a victim of childhood sexual abuse further intensifies the protagonist's sexual ambivalence. She is torn between one role as an active, active member of a religious charity and another as part of the underworld same-sex relationships. This contradiction culminates in her occasional epileptic seizures, which she shrouds with secrecy, fearing that were they to come to light, she would be pushed to the margins of social activities and excluded from work and marriage opportunities just as she would be ostracized if her sexuality was revealed. The author discloses the protagonist's suffering, and I quote her, My illness had always been a secret. For long periods of time, even speaking about it was a disgraceful act that could trigger a scolding in our household. It was as if illness was a sin without possibility of forgiveness, a flow it was necessary to hide, a little scandal blemishing the family that must not get out beyond the most intimate circles. I understand the logic that equates illness with a bad reputation. No one is going to come forward promptly to pick this, this up for, and carry it for you. No one wants to take it to his bosom. No one will be in a hurry to procure such, such a thing for his sterling family tree. In this passage, the protagonist elucidates the agony of her occasional epileptic seizures, which rob her of her agency to control her body and her voice, rendering her condition visible to the world. However, the pain is compounded by the fear that others m may know about it. And I find that emphasis on the world and the social stigma attached to some illnesses like epilepsy, described here as a sin, disgrace, blemishing, flow, scandal, and the mark of a bad reputation is most intriguing because it reveals a consistency between the two opposites, body and society, reflecting one another like a mirror. This tells many other stories, not only about the protagonist's suffering, but also about human relations and how such illness would reduce her marriage chances because no one will be in a hurry to procure such a thing. Now we'll wrap it up with the last theme, and that is gender and violence in Saudi women's fiction. Drawing on Foucault's knowledge and concept of power relationships in his work on the modern penal system, discipline and punish the birth of the prison, Saudi women writers also attempt to dismantle the female body as an object of knowledge and the discursive practices of violence, imprisonment and rape, and the non-discursive practices of power and powerlessness. 
By restructuring moments of violence against women, these writers are collectively dancing with words while subverting the master narrative. Among the many violent themes that these narratives share is that of brutal domestic violence, in the case of which their authors manipulate the world of the novel in order to highlight what many male texts have sought to obscure, what lies beneath their society's ideals for women of purity, piety, and domestic serenity. In these novels, the protagonists are victims of an openly patriarchal culture that not only consign women to an inferior place in society, but also dissuades them from taking responsibility for their lives. Allowing the reader to encounter stories of rape, torture, and unsafe backstreet abortion so closely is nothing less than fascinating. In some, these stories capture the level of resistance and change among writers who, by tackling the issue of violence against women, are collectively challenging stereotypical accusations of muteness on Saudi women's long and arduous road to gender equality. The dynamic of violence in these novels bring to the forefront domestic matters that have global resonance. Badri al-Bishr, The Swing, al-Arjuha, describes the life of Anna. I'll just give this example and we'll be done. So al-Arjuha describes the life of Anna, a black-skinned girl who is brought up in a palace where her parents work. The story tells of how this young girl enjoys a carefree life compared to the lighter-skinned girls who are protected and sheltered from the prying eyes of the palace's sexually repressed males. And Nab is allowed to wander the corridors of the harem-like quarters, even during the hours of the siesta, oblivious to her sexuality and the risk of harassment or even the unthinkable rape. This all ends one day when, during her daily patrols, she is snatched in palace in broad daylight by an unidentified white man and raped. After this ordeal, Annab is reduced to a passive signifier with her body turned into a mere object of desire, part thigh, part bottom. Her mother adds insult to injury as fearing a scandal and the possibility of her daughter's pregnancy. She marries her off almost immediately to a member of the palace's staff who is depicted as chewing gut all day. That is a Yemeni type of hashish. The marriage is a kind of hell, and when it finally ends, it has totally transformed Annab into a careless and loose woman, lacking self-esteem, the painful, humiliating incident having caused a rupture in her consciousness whereby the psychological assault on her carries a long-term force that brings about her self-destruction. In the swing, al-Badriya succeeds in, bringing, in breaking the silence on sexual abuse in the Saudi literary tradition by depicting the petrifying psychological processes and consequences of rape. Al-Bishr goes even further to link rape with color bias because of the victim's color, especially when in the book Annab is depicted as innocently trying to wipe out the ugliness of what has just happened to her by desperately rubbing her black skin. It is a moment that captures Annab's realization of her difference from others, lighter-skinned girls in the palace who are protected against such assault by their titles and lighter-skinned pigments, the color of masters, not slaves. That's what she's thinking and I'll come to this in a bit. Annab's blackness is blamed for her rape, a point that is later forced into her conscience 
when a friend and traveling companion, Maryam, upon hearing how Annab and Selwa spent the night clubbing and smoking hashish in one of Geneva's nightclubs, asks, aren't you embarrassed of what you're doing? Aren't you afraid that people might see you? The narrator answers Maryam saying, Annab was numb to feelings of shame and fear of crossing social boundaries because her black color, of, of which she was made conscious of she was raped at a young age, set her free from any alignments of shame and propriety. Hence, violence and abuse transforms the silent and pretty girl into a defiant woman. Her chaotic experiences with men stand as a trope of the patriarchal culture that allows men to abuse women without being held accountable. The misfortune of Annab brings with it a sense of liberation from the heavy shackles of conformity She is depicted as enjoying a wild and hedonistic lifestyle after her supposed fall from grace. Hence, violence in this context is evoked as having a symbolic meaning for patriarchal tyranny, and it acts as a fueling agent and an active force in the creation of a narrative that shatters the silence of women, defying as does the model of silent propriety. Done. Thank you. Fascinating. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.